What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Coming up on this week's Science Revolution, I'm covering a scientific study on democracy. Are you satisfied with democracy? Tia Schwab, independent journalist, is here on factory farming conditions. Are they healthy for animals and bad for people, too? And Stephen Trent, founder and executive director of the Environmental Justice Foundation, will highlight the devastating impact of climate crisis on reefs. Daniel Jutt is also a contributor to Nation Magazine, and he covers Australia is Burning. Stay tuned. On the line with us is Tia Schwab, the independent journalist, contributor to Truthout, former Stone Pier Press News fellow. Truthout.org is where her most recent piece, Factory Farm Conditions Are Unhealthy for Animals and Bad for People Too, was published. Tia, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us. I don't think that most people realize that there is no federal law against your local store, or for that matter, the distributor or the processor from whom they bought their meat products that they're reselling for your local store to sell you a product that could kill you. There's a piece in today's Washington Post quoting this fellow who's launching a lawsuit. And he says, when I tell people that chicken manufacturers can knowingly and legally sell something that can kill you, they don't believe me. The article points out, and you point out in your article too, that salmonella, one in 10 pieces of meat that you buy in the supermarket is contaminated with this stuff. And salmonella causes 1.35 million infections, 26,500 hospitalizations, and 422 deaths in the United States every year. How did we get here? Yeah, it's definitely, it's a huge problem. And it, a lot of it stems from our dependence on factory farming. As you pointed out in my most recent article, a lot of people think about factory farms as presenting a lot of health issues for the animals themselves. Factory farms try to increase this by maximizing the density of animals kept on those farms. So they're often kept in extremely cramped and unsanitary conditions. But as you can imagine, the unhealthy conditions for farm animals puts people at risk, too, when people are eating animal products or even other food products further down the line. So a lot of this goes back to just the conditions on factory farms. Well, it's also mind-boggling amounts of antibiotics, is it not? Yes. One thing that I wrote about in my article is that way more of our antibiotics that we produce in the U.S. go towards farm animals specifically, more so than people, which is a huge issue. The review on antimicrobial resistance, which was commissioned by the Wellcome Trust in the U.K. government, recently estimated that 700,000 people die globally per year due to antimicrobial resistance infections. And because we use so many antibiotics on farms just to increase growth in animals, but also to prevent disease from spreading because those conditions are so cramped and unsanitary, antibiotic-resistant bacteria are multiplying at quicker rates, which is going to put us at higher risk 
in the future. Right. You point out in your article that 2017, apparently the last year for which we have statistics, 11 million kilograms of antibiotics. And keep in mind, that that's like, you know, what, 24 million pounds. And you don't take antibiotics by the pound. You take it by the milligram, by the one thousandth of mm -hmm. a gram. So that's mm -hmm. a heck of a lot of doses of antibiotics were used in the United States for factory farmed animals. And this is producing a, an epidemic of these diseases. If you talk to people who are in their 60s, 70s or older, they'll tell you about a time in the United States when on restaurant menus you had steak tartare. In other words, literally raw steak. And people would you know, mm -hmm. crack fresh eggs into orange juice and put it in the blender in the morning for breakfast. And it was this was all considered healthy stuff. Nowadays, if you were to do either of those things, you literally are taking your life in your hands. Yes. One thing that that same report that I mentioned found is that if we don't intervene now, by 2050, they estimate that about 10 million more people per year will die from antimicrobial resistant infections. If you're looking at it from an, even an economic perspective, not just the value of a human life, that will cause a 2 to 3.5% reduction in our global GDP as well. We need to take action now. I understand in Europe and many other countries, Japan, the use of antibiotics in animal farming, if farming is the right word, and these hypercrowded conditions largely don't exist and they don't end up with the giant waste pools, you know, that are the result of the intestinal systems of these animals being sterilized essentially by all the antibiotics. And so they're not properly digesting their food. How unique is this to the United States? And secondly, how is it that other countries can produce relatively safe meat products and we can't? So some of those countries that you mentioned, those are recent developments. And I think that this issue is just now starting to gain as much attention as it is. Even in the United States, there's recently some laws that passed and went into effect in 2017 where medically important antibiotics can't be used for growth promotion in animals. And also if there's medically important antibiotics that it wants to be used for a farm animal after disease outbreak. It has to be approved by a vet beforehand. You could just administer the antibiotics without getting any sort of approval. And so I think there are small steps being taken in the United States to try to reduce this issue. But like you mentioned, so many other countries have already passed laws where you can't use an antibiotic on factory farms just to increase the growth of an animal or to prevent the spread of disease because those conditions are so tight. You can only use antibiotics if there is a proven disease outbreak and you need to administer those. And I think that's the direction that the U.S. needs to move in as well. I would also like to see us move in the direction of eating a lot fewer dead animals, essentially. Oh, yeah. Speaking as a vegan, <laughs> I'm wondering if anybody has ever done the math on this. If Americans were to there's this whole meatless Monday movement right now, which is a great health mm -hmm. thing as well as a lot of other things. But if Americans were to eat essentially vegan or vegetarian meals half the week, at what point do mm -hmm. we hit a threshold where the demand for meat is reduced to the point where factory farms are not necessary or not economically I don't think they're ever really necessary. I mean, this is all about profit, but where mm -hmm. it would once again be profitable to farm animals in a way that is more humane and less likely to produce all these deaths and all this sickness mm -hmm. among humans. I'm not sure I could like quote a specific statistic on, you know, how 
based on like the current population size, how many people or how many meals we would have to go vegetarian to make non-factory farming sustainable for our meat consumption. But I think your overall point is absolutely correct that we need to dramatically cut our consumption of animal products as we move towards ideally safer standards on factory farms. The number one thing you can do right now is not purchase animal products, not consume animal products. You can vote three times a day in your meals by not choosing animal products. Or if you do want to choose to consume animal products, do choose to buy from local and or organic and or small farms. Where ideally, you can speak directly to the farmer about their practices. But as you mentioned, the number one thing you can do is go animal products free here. Right. Or as close to that as you can get. Yes, exactly. And starting out with Meatless Money is a great (laughs) place to start. Tia Schwab, independent journalist, contributor to Truthout and former Stone Pier Press News Fellow. Tia, thanks so much for dropping by. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Sponsoring the interview this week is New Leaf Natural CBD Oil. Boy, with all this impeachment stuff and Trump treason flying around, you know, I have been doubling my CBD oil dose. I love CBD oil. It doesn't get you high, but it, and it's non-toxic, but it's a potent pain reliever and anti, or it has potent pain relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. I think is the proper way to say that. And the brand I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. NU Leaf Natural CBD oil is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic, highly concentrated, has no additional additives, grown in the USA, and the only ingredient is hemp, so the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com, that's NUleafnaturals.com, and save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, it's spelled T-H-O-M. Go to NUleafnaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place, NewLeafNaturals.com. That's NewLeafNaturals.com. That's NUleafnaturals.com. Code Tom, it's spelled T-H-O-M. NewLeafnaturals.com. So 275 million people around the world depend on coral reefs directly or indirectly. They're one of the richest ecosystems on the planet. They're sort of like the rainforests underwater, you know, with the extraordinary biodiversity. In 2016 alone, the Great Barrier Reef lost one-third or 30% of its coral to bleaching. This is serious, serious stuff. On the line with us is Stephen Trent. He is the founder and executive director of the Environmental Justice Foundation and the founder of Wild Aid. EJFoundation.org is the website and also the Twitter handle. Stephen, welcome to the program. Hi, Tom. Good to be talking with you. Thanks so much for joining us. Where are you located right now? Right now, I'm in the capital of Ghana, Accra, sitting in my hotel, having had meetings all day. (laughs) Remarkable. Remarkable. The wonders of technology. So you guys just issued a new report, the Environmental Justice Foundation, about the state of our coral reefs and the state of our climate and the relationship between the two. You want to summarize that for us? simple but scary. The basic facts, you just mentioned some of them, is that corals are amazingly important. You know, they cover just 0.1% of our ocean, but some of the oldest ecosystems in our world, and they support a huge variety of life. Hundreds of thousands of animal and plant species, and probably a quarter of all marine species are dependent on corals in some way or another. And yet when we talk about climate change, we've recently seen the fires in Australia, terrible fires in Australia, the floods in Indonesia. But 
maybe what is less hidden is the impact in our seas and oceans. And they are warming up. And to try and give you a sense of what that will mean for corals, just 1.5 degrees warmer in our global temperatures doesn't sound like much will lead to the loss of something like 70 to 90% of these amazing ecosystems. And two degrees hotter will lose us well over 90%. And we're already witnessing die-off of huge areas of corals because of global warming. Seas are becoming more acid because of our heating planet. And also things like illegal fishing and plastic pollution. They're all combining. They're all conspiring to damage these wonderful ecosystems, which millions of people depend on just for their basic livelihoods and food security. It's essentially a destructive synergy. Coral reefs absorb wave energy. They act as kind of a natural barrier. Well, in fact, you know, the old phrase barrier reefs. Tell us about what would happen to cities on the shore particularly in this era of increasing flooding and rising sea levels, but just normal flooding from severe storms, what would happen to these cities if the coral reefs were to die and disintegrate? It's a very good point. These coral barriers, let's call them that, these coral barriers protect coastal ecosystems from the most extreme weather. They act as a barrier to rising sea level and to those violent storms that come in that we've seen cause wreak havoc in different areas. So lose them, you are losing a fantastically important natural defense. And if you want to try and translate this into dollars, you can look at huge cost to replicate the defensive capacities of a coral reef. Unthinkable in terms of the value there. And again, it's just another one of those those little known facts but one that needs to be better understood by governments, by communities, by businesses, by all of us. If we let these ecosystems die off, if we allow that to happen, the knock-on effect on us, on our economic well-being, our social well-being, will be huge. And I think we need to look at this now and take action now. You mentioned in passing the acidification of the oceans as carbon dioxide mm. is in, is released into our atmosphere, a significant fraction of that is absorbed into the oceans and it does the same thing that carbon dioxide being put into Coca-Cola does. It turns it into carbonic acid. It makes it more acidic. And I think a lot of people don't realize that corals are actually animals. They're just not animals that run around. They're animals, you know, more like mollusks or things like that that attach themselves actually to each other, building these kind of giant cities of coral. But they are animals that have an exoskeleton and they have a shell or whatever it's appropriately called scientifically. And that's made of calcium. And in the presence of acid, that dissolves. They also produce larvae that require that protection. How is acidification impacting coral right now? And how much more independent of temperature, how much more acidification is probably coming down the road and how do we expect that to be influencing coral? That's a very good question and obviously we're talking big numbers and big picture here. You you can't be too precise but what we do know, what science can tell you categorically is that most of the carbon dioxide we're producing and releasing into our atmosphere is absorbed along with the heat by our and oceans. That increasing acidification is already causing vast die-offs of coral ecosystems. So perhaps the best well-known is the Great Barrier Reef, 
where for 500,000 years it's been home to an astonishing variety of wildlife. And yet in 2016, the reef lost 30% of its coral due to bleaching. To make matters worse, Corals have experienced bleaching throughout their history, their life cycle. Well, bleaching is just a fancy word for these animals dying, is it not? Because well, the, yeah. the animals produce the pigment that gives it its color. It loses its pigment when they die. Exactly. Is that exactly? Yeah. Okay. Exactly. The bleaching is it represents dial. Where you have the classic image of a coral reef is this explosion of a color and life, and when it's bleached, you see dead white structure. Is it is exactly that, and that's happening because of warmer oceans and more acidic oceans and on top of that you have the addition of things like pollution runoff from agriculture plastic pollution particularly the microplastics all known now to be attacking the corals limiting their ability to recover so what can we do about this you know obviously we need to stop producing carbon dioxide to stop emitting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere particularly co2 methane that breaks down to co2 what else or is that it? Is that the core okay. core call for action here? Obviously climate. And if you understand the science, then you have to view many of the environmental and other issues that we face today, the challenges that we face today, through the lens of our heating planet. But put that aside to a minute. Probably the greatest near-term threat to corals that we have now is illegal, unsustainable fishing. That is something we could solve tomorrow. We can get rid of the illegal fishing operations that are damaging coral reefs, degrading marine environments, and are sucking up all the fish that communities need to survive on. So point one, let's deal with the illegal fishing. Second thing that we can look at is having what we call marine protected areas, like marine parks, but making them cover serious areas of our ocean to allow fish stocks to recover, to protect the corals, to give local communities access to alternative livelihoods like ecotourism. These marine protected areas in the past have also often been just paper parks. You sign a deal, you say you've got one, but you don't enforce it, you don't look after it. Let's create more on and around coral reefs and let's enforce them. Let's make sure that they're well managed and they give the benefits that could really come from them. And then last thing I would say, let's just get rid of some of the pollution that we're chucking into our seas and oceans. There's no need to have the microplastics and the plastics that are being poured into our ocean, particularly in the Pacific, where you have these vast coral habitats. Same with agricultural runoff and sewage. Stephen Trent, the founder and executive director of the Environmental Justice Foundation and the founder of WildAid, ejfoundation.org is the website. Stephen, thanks so much for dropping by today. Thank you, Tom. Great speaking with you, and I really appreciate it. Daniel Jutt is on the line with us. He's a contributor to The Nation magazine, where he's reporting a three-part series on climate justice. His most recent, uh, Australia is Burning, is the uh, cover story for the February 10th issue of The Nation magazine. You can also find it online at thenation.com. And uh, Daniel, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Tom. Thanks for joining us. In your article, you point out that Australia was once positioned to be a leader in climate change. Now we've got Scott Morrison, the prime minister, who denies climate change. You've got a majority of his party denying climate change. And you've got this woman who's a coal baron and the richest person in Australia funding many of these politicians, as well as right-wing think tanks that deny climate change. What happened to Australia? Yeah, what happened to Australia? It's a great question. 
And I think it's an important one to ask now as we consider the next decade of climate action, which the international scientists for the UN have told us is going to be the most important decade yet. Yeah, because Australia might be coming to a town near you here any day now. Exactly, exactly. And I think to understand what happened to Australia, you have to go back to 2007, which was really the key moment here. So in 2007, according to a poll by one of Australia's think tanks, 68% of Australians thought that climate change was an urgent issue that required immediate action, even if there were costs for that action. And as a result, there was a push in politics from both sides, the Labour Party, which is on the left, and the Liberal Party, which is the Australian Conservative Party, to bring kind of carbon tax effectively into Australian politics. That fell apart in 2007. And since then, it's been downhill for the Liberal Party, which has become the party of climate denial, seized on the mantle of becoming the party of coal, which is a huge dynamic in Australian politics, even more than it is in American. And just to give you a sense of how profound the shift was, in 2012, that same poll found that only 36% of Australians thought that climate change was urgent and required immediate action. So it's really been since 2007, a rapid decline yeah. in the country's ability well, coal to is, on I, I believe, the principal export of Australia, isn't it? Or certainly among the top five. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. They're also the leading exporter of coal in the world as wow. of 2018, and also the leading exporter of natural gas. Wow. So Kevin Rudd, the former prime minister of Australia, wrote an op-ed in the Sydney Morning Herald last year. And the title, the headline, kind of tells the whole thing. Rupert Murdoch is the cancer at the heart of Australian politics. That was the headline. And he talks about how Murdoch and his newspapers, he owns more than half the newspapers in Australia, both in absolute numbers and by circulation, as I recall. And that Murdoch's papers, or Murdoch himself, basically kneecapped the left, or for that matter, the middle in Australia. And then he moved to the United Kingdom, and he did the same thing there, Maggie Thatcher and everything that followed. And then he moved to the United States and created five. Fox News, and I believe it was in the late 1980s, early 1990s, and did the same thing to us. To what extent is this change in public opinion in Australia about the significance and, and horrors of global climate change and the need to act on it? You said it's gone from two-thirds support down to one-third support, roughly. To what extent is that attributable to this one cranky old billionaire? <laughs> Well, I should add that since 2012, that number that I was citing has gone closer back up to 60%. So there is some hope that maybe the direction is turning now. Presumably because of the wildfires. Presumably because of the wildfires, exactly. And Australia is on the front lines of climate change right now. And everyone I talked to while I was there reporting this story knows that whether they relate it to climate change or not, this is different and they've never seen anything like this before. That was absolutely universal. And that's something that even Murdoch's papers have trouble combating. So what they've done instead is shift to a different kind of climate denial. And this is something that Scott Morrison has done as well. Rather than claim that climate change doesn't exist or isn't causing these fires, they're doing two other things. First, They're claiming in Murdoch's papers and in the Liberal Party that climate change is happening. It is man-made, but it's not Australia's men and women who are making it. 
So Morrison will give you the statistic very often that 1.3% of the world's emissions are Australia's. So how can it possibly be their fault? And that obscures the fact that per capita, the country is one of the highest emitters in the world. Hmm. And the second thing that they're doing, they are retroactively claiming that Australia has in fact acted on climate politics and doesn't need to act anymore. And to do that, they're citing some statistics from their pledges to international climate agreements like the Kyoto Protocol and the Paris Agreement that make it seem as though they're actually meeting their commitments to reduce emissions, when in reality, in the raw data, those emissions continue to go up. So one could say they're basically cooking the books. Yeah. Yeah, which doesn't surprise probably anybody, but it's really tragic. You said that public opinion is now back up above 50 or even 60 percent in favor of at least acknowledging climate change. Do you see, particularly given the ferocity of the wildfires that we've seen just in the last few months, I don't know if polls have been done in the last few weeks that would reflect any change in public opinion, but do you see the possibility that the Liberal Party, which is the conservative party in Australia, they use the word liberal the way Europeans do to mean basically libertarian, that the Liberal Party, the conservative Liberal Party in Australia might have an epiphany and decide to start ignoring their big fossil fuel donors, particularly this coal baron? It's a good question, and it's one that everyone in Australia is asking right now. I think we are a long way from seeing change in the Liberal Party on anything but the level of rhetoric. So to give you an example, I talked in Australia to a lot of former fire chiefs. These are people who have been on the front lines of fighting fires for decades in Australia. In some case, up to 40, 45 years of their life spent fighting fires. They have tried as a group over the past eight months to meet with the Morrison government to try and form an emergency council around bushfires, not even to push for more climate action, but just to figure out how to better prepare for the reality that this will be the summer Australia lives with in the years to come. Morrison has refused to meet with them. And I think that whatever rhetoric comes forward in the next few months, ultimately, this is an issue that the Liberal Party seems to have decided, like the Republicans in the United States, is going to be the issue that they will go down fighting on. And as far as change is concerned, it's going to have to come from activism, from work on the left in Australian politics and from winning the next election. Daniel Judd, his new piece is in The Nation magazine. TheNation.com is the website. It's a three-part series on climate justice. This particular one that we were just discussing is titled Australia is Burning. It's the cover story of the February 10th issue of The Nation. Daniel, thanks for dropping by today. Tom, thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure. It's been great talking with you. It's been very informative. I appreciate the reporting. Daniel Judd, it's spelled J-U-D-T, by the way, if you want to check out this article. That's all for this week's Science Revolution. You can find the video portions of the Science Revolution on YouTube and check out our Facebook page.